Consider a bowling alley. You've got the two gutters running down either side. You've got the pins, and you bowl that bowling ball. And I don't know how good you are at bowling. If I break 100, I'm a happy man. <laughs> and uh, it's similar to that. You know what, what, what Jesus did when he died is, is similar in some ways to putting up the bumpers so that we don't go in the gutter. Because on our own, we gutter every time. But with those bumpers up, what that means is my spiritual life is a little bit more like this. What's great, though, is the further back you pull from looking at that scene of a bowling ball, imagining that smacking back and forth between those bumpers, the further back you get, the straighter it looks. You know? It's still a, it's still a straight line. It's a rather bumpy straight line. I, I go over this side and I go over that side. And, and you know, the two sides that I bounce back and forth the most between are mercy and truth. Now, I'm real comfortable with truth. You may know that by now. I have no problem standing up here and saying, this is the truth, this is the bottom line, this is the absolute. I like absolutes. I'm safe in the absolutes. I'm comfortable in that realm. And I'm real comfortable as a Christian, espousing Christian things and stating our position. It's the mercy side that's a little more difficult. That's where I start to feel out there. And so, you know, we bounce back over to truth. And then get back to mercy and back to truth. And it's this back and forth walk that I found that I have in my life. And this is why I so love walking through the scriptures. Because just when I'm getting a little heavy-handed with the truth side of things, God brings in grace. He says, okay, now we're going to talk about this. And what I explained to my friend on, on Friday is... Preaching week in and week out as I do is going down that alley and bouncing back and forth. Because he was saying, this friend of mine was stating, you know, there were a few months ago where you were, you were hitting something. You were hitting it really hard and it just didn't seem like you. It seemed really harsh. And, and I thought back and I remember what was going on at the time and why it came across that way. He didn't know that. But it was a time where, as a fellowship, I think we needed truth. We always need truth. But it was a time where we needed some things to be stated so that we understood where we stood before the Lord. But he brings us back and forth. And week in, week out, I'm I'm doing this thing. But the guiding principle behind it is what the Spirit is telling us. It's what the Word is, is indicating. And it's wonderful. Because again, I don't have to stand up here and determine what it is that you need. Because I have no idea. I know what I need. I need some Tylenol because bouncing back and forth is giving me a headache. But but I know what I need in my life. What do you need? Only you know. And the Holy Spirit of the living God knows. God knows what you need. God knows why you're here this morning. God knows what you need to hear. And so I want to pray as we begin that God speak to you what you need this morning. Dear Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for the quiet and the stillness of this place for moments of reflection and remembrance for the opportunity Lord to think about Jesus and to consider the cross and to consider that day of salvation and Father if there's anyone here today who has never made the commitment to Jesus and doesn't know doesn't have that day to look back and say that was the day I claimed Christ as my Savior Father I pray before we're done today that today will be that day Lord, we need you to speak to us because we are very much like that bowling ball and we do spend a lot of our lives in the gutter. 
We need the bumpers up and we need your direction, your calling. And Father, only you have the omnipotence and the omnipresence and the omniscience to know what every single one of us this morning are thinking. And not only to know what we're thinking, Father, what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, but you know what we need. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will simply provide what you know we need. Not what we think we need, but what you know that we need. By your Spirit, in this teaching, Lord, would you speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 6, but I'm going to begin in Hebrews chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible in your lap, open to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We've been doing some archaeology. Digging into the Ark of the Covenant. Archaeology. It's it's what we've been, kind of where we've been at the last two or three weeks. Again, by design of the scripture and what's happening in Israel, we've been studying and looking at the ark and its impact. In fact, the section of scripture we've been in recently is what, I I believe it must have been what kind of yielded the whole idea behind the Indiana Jones trilogy, Indiana Jones and the the Lost Ark. That whole thing, that that idea of of the ark and and even that little picture in the movie where it shows the ark and lightning coming out of it and and wrath of God and, and the movie gets it completely wrong and doesn't tie it to scripture at all but the whole idea is the ark as this pretty amazing thing and so we've been digging and looking at this archaeologically and in Hebrews chapter 9 it tells us a bit more I I want to dig a little bit further this morning and and explain as we go why why we're doing this verse 1 of Hebrews 9 says now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant. Now that's a little confusing because people think, wait a minute, I thought, thought, and, and Exodus describes that when you go into the holy place... On the left there is the lampstand and on the right is the table of showbread and and directly in front of you is the altar of incense. Well the Hebrew writer puts it inside and what uh, historians, theologians think is that the, the altar of incense was connected to the veil that went in. It, it, was, it was very closely tied to it. There was an incredible significance and importance to the altar of incense and the incense that went up and the priest, the high priest, making sure that that altar, that the incense was burning before going on around into the Holy of Holies that once a day, one day a year that they would do that. But it says the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, cover on all sides with gold, in which was the golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. Which, by the way, is another thing we didn't know until the book of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, all we knew was the Ten Commandments were in the Ark. We didn't really know if the rod that budded was in there or the manna, the jar of manna. All it says in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures is that they were placed in front of the testimony, in front of 
the Ark of the Covenant. So now the Hebrew writer is illuminating some things for us. He's showing us some things we weren't really sure of before. He says inside the Ark of the Covenant was that gold, uh, was the golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets. Above it, verse 5, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Why not, you might ask? Because the whole rest of the book would be spent trying to talk about those things. It's intricate. It's amazing. And I encourage you, if you haven't done so, to pick up the teaching in the book of Exodus where we go through and talk about in depth the Ark of the Covenant and what that looks like. It's fantastic study. It's amazing things back there in the book of Exodus. But going on, it says, verse 6, Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second... Only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Ark of the Covenant. Now again, picture this thing in your minds if you can. If you're if you're not visually if you're kind of visually impaired, just think about it. This golden box made of acacia wood, covered inside and out with pure gold, and inside were the Ten Commandments. And on top was the mercy seat. The mercy seat was this, this construction of two cherubim, actually of two cherubs. Cherubim is the plural of cherub. So uh, the cherubim on there facing each other, wings touching, looking inward on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And this thing sat up there on the top. It's actually considered, as you go through and study all of this, the seventh piece of furniture. The mercy seat, a separate thing itself, though it sits atop the Ark of the Covenant. And the ark again was kept in the Holy of Holies, the innermost room of the sanctuary of God. And once a year on that most holy day for the Jews, Leviticus 16, 14-15 tells us the high priest would enter with the blood of a bull on his fingers and he would sprinkle it seven times on the mercy seat to make atonement or covering for the people's sins. He would do the same thing a second time with the blood of a goat. He would go back out, get the blood of a goat, come in and sprinkle the blood of a goat seven times on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, and the people's sins would be covered at least for one more year. It's kind of a year at a time basis. And the people of Israel would look forward to that day of atonement, Yom Kippur, as that day when... Finally, we are freed of the sins of the last year. We are completely washed. We're cleansed. God has atoned for us, covered us. The sins weren't gone, but they were covered over, at least for the time being. And Jesus, as we've talked about, we have much more than atonement, much more than covering. The New Testament doesn't use the word atonement. It uses the word propitiation, which means erasure. Our sins have not just been covered, they've been completely erased. Now last Sunday, in thinking about the Ark of the Covenant, we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 4, how the Israelites attempted to take the Ark into battle against the Philistines. And in so doing, they lost 30,000 men in what's described as a great slaughter. And they misunderstood the truth we talked about last week, that you cannot put God in a box. You can't assume that God is limited to one action or, or one thing, The ark was simply a shadow of what was to come. It was not the substance of God. It was not the power of God. You can't put God in a box. You can't tie His hands. 
You can't wrap up spiritual things in neat and tidy formulas or paradigms or programs. That's God in a box. And any time we begin to rely more on the substance or on the shadow than on the substance, we are missing the boat. Paul says in Colossians 2.17, the substance belongs to Christ. He is the issue. We don't rely on the formula. We rely on the Father. We don't put God in a box. So 1 Samuel 4, we see that. We see Israel putting God in a box. They they fail miserably. They're wiped out. 30,000 people. But things get worse. They intensify in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Not for Israel, but for the Philistines. If you were here Wednesday night, (laughs) we talked through this. Very interesting story. First, the Philistines take the Ark of God and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And the next morning when they walk in, Dagon is face down on the ground. Well, it must have been an earthquake last night. So they pick Dagon up and they set him back up. The next morning when they go, go in there, Dagon is back on the ground, but now his head and his hands are cut off. And I shared this, and I've shared this many times before, but it's one of my favorite things to say. It proves to us this principle. You know what I'm going to say? Here to Dagon tomorrow. That's the principle there with Dagon. I'm going to give you a chance to wake up here. You know, need to. But it gets worse for the Philistines. It's not just that their God falls over and gets broken and picked back up and, and put over again. It's not just that. They start to realize there's another problem with the Ark of the Covenant being in their territory. The Lord struck the Philistines with a plague of killer hemorrhoids. What a way to die, huh? I mean, it was a horrible situation. You could say this plague sort of snuck up from behind. Sorry. But it does make you think about a well-known military theory. If you're going to go into battle, always protect the rear. And they didn't do that. Protect the rear. Now, some of you may say, wait a minute. When I read 1 Samuel chapter 5, it doesn't say hemorrhoids. It says tumors. Listen, the Greek or the Hebrew language here, it's two Hebrew words together. Takor Othel or Othel. Awful. <laughs> Sounds like awful taco, awful tumors. It is awful tumors. Takor Afel indicates burning, swelling hemorrhoids. And this was the plague that God gave the Philistines who had taken the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a plague so bad, I mean, we can, we can kind of grin about this and laugh about it, but it was a plague so bad that it killed killer hemorrhoids. I mean, talk about the end times. This was a bad situation for the Philistines. It's their own end times. Let's just move on. So they decide to send the ark back to Israel. And that's where our story picks up this morning. They say, okay, we've had enough of this. It wasn't the Israelites that were a problem for, for the Philistines. It was this ark. And so they figure out, and, and it's, it, again, very humorous, very comical. They put it on a cart, and with it they send off a guilt offering of five golden mice, because apparently mice were rampant all over the place along with these hemorrhoidal tumors the mice were probably carrying it from town to town and it was awful so they had golden mice five golden mice and the Bible says five golden tumors or hemorrhoids can you imagine looking in that box when it arrives those are mice not sure what that is not sure I want to know what that is but they sent this guilt offering off it arrives back the ark arrives back and so the Israelites are very excited that the ark is home. Let's pick up there. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 13 and watch what happens. The ark shows up on this cart led by these two cows. 
shows up there in a city called Beth Shemesh. Verse 13, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. They raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua, the Beth Shemite, and stood there where there was a large stone, and they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone, and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. So things are good. The ark is back. The Levites come in. The priests now surround. They begin to offer sacrifices. They begin to approach the Lord the right way. And things are good until, skip ahead to verse 19, it tells us, He, meaning the Lord, struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And I want you to get a picture of this. 50,070 men, the Bible tells us, were killed. Now you may have a New International Version, translation of the Bible. And if you're reading that, it says 70 men. I believe it's a mistranslation. Now that's just my opinion. I can't absolutely prove that. But many of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts indicate that it was indeed 50,070. Two of my favorite commentaries. I went all over the place trying to figure out this number. Not not that it's that important, but I, I wanted to know. And as I went back and forth, my two favorite commentaries that I tend to use completely disagree on this number. One said, no way could it be 50,070, it was just 70 men, it's just a, a scribal error. Uh, the other one saying, hey, that's what the Bible says, it's there, that was the number, that's it. Why the discrepancy? Because the number itself, 50,070 people, is really hard to reconcile. If in fact it's true, it's hard to make sense of considering the area. Think about this, Quest Field. Quest Field seats 67,000 people at a football game. What would it be like if suddenly in the middle of a game, on Monday night, you looked around at yourself and found that 50,000 of the 67,000 seats were filled with dead people? That's the number we're talking about here. Huge. A massive, massive number of people. Some have said, there, there probably weren't 50,000 people in the region of Beth Shemesh at the time. And you're telling me that 50,000 people looked in the ark and died suddenly because of that? I don't know. I, I'm not sure I can, I can quite buy that. And yet on the other hand, the Bible describes a great slaughter. It's the same phrase that's used in 1 Samuel chapter 4 describing the death of 30,000 Israelites. 70,000 by or 70 versus 30,000 70 is not a great slaughter by comparison but here in the text it tells us that the Lord struck the people with a great slaughter so 50,000 70 70 which one is it again from my from my own mind I think that uh, it's best just to take it as it is it's best not to alter the scriptures simply to suit our personal sensibilities which people do an awful lot, don't we? Well, I know it says that, but that's not really what it means. I understand that, that, that that's what's in the Word, but, but that was cultural. That was for then, not for now. We don't change the Bible just because it might be hard to take. We take the Word 
as it is. But there's a tougher question here than numbering the slaughtered. And the question is this. What could possibly be so deadly serious about lifting the cover off the Ark of the Covenant to double check the contents? Why is this such a big deal that the Lord would slaughter so many Israelites for doing it? Whether it's 70 or 50,000 70, what could possibly be the reason behind such slaughter? And the truth is so big here that it's applicable to all times. Consider this. What was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant that we know for sure? The Ten Commandments. Gang, this is what happens when you remove mercy from the law. Anytime you go in and you attempt to remove mercy from the law, a great slaughter occurs. This is the the message, and I read over and over and over this, trying to understand what it is that God is saying, and I believe this is the message for all time, that you don't remove mercy from the law. God saw fit from the very beginning, from the giving of the law, knowing how impossible it would be for man to keep it, He saw fit from the beginning to cover it with mercy. To cover the law with the mercy seat. And it was the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement that the high priest sprinkled the blood on. The blood representing someday the blood that Jesus would shed. The blood of atonement that is poured out on the mercy seat covering the law that is within. Because God knew even then what man didn't know. What the Israelites couldn't possibly have fathomed. You are not going to keep this law. You can't do it. This law is perfect. See, the law is not the problem as we've talked about so many times. The law is perfect. If we could keep it, it could save us. We are the problem. We can't keep it. And so it cannot save us. And so we have to have mercy covering the law. The men of Beth Shemesh, they lifted the covering to see if the law was still there. To look into things. It was in Philistine territory. Maybe they took it out. We've got to make sure everything's intact here. They lifted the covering. They look inside. And they looked at it with certain motives that the Lord knew. Kyle and Delich in their commentary in the Old Testament say that the construction of the Hebrew words here indicate to look upon or add a thing with lust or malicious pleasure. And here no doubt signifies a foolish staring which was incompatible with the holiness of the ark of God and was punished with death according to the warning expressed in Numbers chapter 4 verse 20. The law itself states that the people of Israel were never to gaze upon or touch the ark, much less remove the mercy seat from it and look inside. And this is what the people of Beth Shemesh did, resulting in a great slaughter. They removed mercy from the law, and the law kills. Without mercy there is no hope. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56 says, The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. Because the law is so perfect and when I stand next to the law, all you see is not law, you see flaw. Rick, standing by the perfect law. Going into the gutters. Never being able to make a strike, much less hit a single pin. The law shows my flaws. And when mercy is removed, things begin to die. And we need to personalize this a bit this morning. When mercy is removed, things begin to die. What do you mean by that? If I set aside mercy in my relationships for the, for 
the law, something inside me dies. If I cast off mercy in favor of legality, I begin to decay. If I'm going to look into the sin of a friend compared to law to make a right judgment without mercy, something in that relationship is going to die. King David did this. And something died inside of him. I'll read this to you. It's over in 1 Samuel chapter 12. You can go there if you'd like to or you can just listen. Sorry, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's an interesting parable where the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And it tells us in verse 1 that Nathan came to David and he said, he said there were two men in a city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and his children and it would eat his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom it was like a daughter to him now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him rather he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him Nathan's telling this story to David and David's listening to it And David, the man after God's own heart, the the sensitive shepherd, the shepherd king David, he's listening to this and he's going, this is not right. This is not right. You've got to be kidding. He took his his neighbor's little little pet lamb and killed that. That's unthinkable. It tells us David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. And it all came home. And David realized this is not a real this was a parable about what he had done to Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Now what's amazing about this story is that David is incensed that a man would sacrifice a lamb at the very time that his hidden sin was that he had sacrificed a husband and taken his wife. He first committed adultery, then he lied about it, then he tried to cover it up, and then he murdered the husband so no one would know. This is an incredible way to sin that is sitting here on top of David, and yet David, who should at least extend some mercy, being in the sinful state that he is, is nothing but judgmental says this guy deserves to die David sets aside the mercy seat and goes straight to the law instead of recognizing his own sin you ever do that? you ever jump on the judgment wagon when your sin becomes noticeable in someone else's life? I'm not talking about something that you don't do I'm talking about I'm talking about something you do Talk about your own sin issue, and you see it in someone else, and go, "Man, that's ugly." <laughs> Doesn't it seem like we're most offended by things in other people that remind us of us of ourselves? I don't want to see my sin in other people, and so I tend to get enraged or, or sin that we've been forgiven for. Something we've struggled with in the past, but but the Lord has brought us through and forgiven us and brought us to a beautiful new place. And yet sometimes that person is the most judgmental person of the exact sin that they have been freed of. It's uncovering mercy and taking people straight to the law. And the law kills. And something inside us dies 
when we do this. I was asked a great question this week, Michelle. Are we as Christians supposed to judge other people? I've been asked that many times. I've also been quoted, especially by people who don't want to hear it, judge not that you not be judged. That's one of the favorite statements of a non-Christian person is judge not. It's the one scripture that they've memorized, you know. (laughs) But how do we as Christians, how do we avoid being judgmental while at the same time being discerning? I I think that's the balance that we're looking for. I I want to stand for truth. And I want to be discerning and I want to be concerned about the things of righteousness and holiness that's important to me. How do I do that without being judgmental? Well, I'll tell you real quickly, right off the bat, you're not going to do that without being seen as judgmental. If you choose to stand for truth, you are going to be called judgmental. That's going to happen. So just let's set that aside and understand whether you are being judgmental or not. You're going to be called judgmental anytime you try and take any kind of a specific stand on something. Because someone's going to disagree and they're going to, oh, you're just one of those judges. That's what you are. But how do we really do this? Walk in truth and show mercy at the same time. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, in that great Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is up there and he's talking to his disciples and he's teaching. It's one of the most important teaching we have in all Scripture. It's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus is teaching his followers how to pray. And listen to what he says. Verse 9, Matthew 6. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, he ends this prayer, teaching them how to pray, showing them how to pray, and then he gives commentary on what he's just taught them. Commentary on Jesus' prayer, and notice what he focuses on. For, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Heavenly Father, your Father, will not forgive your transgressions. For the whole prayer that Jesus gives, which we could do a sermon series on each stanza of the prayer, walk through it and the importance of each one, for Jesus, the most important matter in the prayer, in the Lord's prayer, is forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Jesus says that's the issue. You want to be heard in prayer... That's the issue. It's forgiveness. It's having a heart of forgiveness. It's forgiving others. If you want to be forgiven yourself. But what's interesting to me is he he says this. Listen real closely. He says, if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you. It doesn't say that, does it? He says, if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. It's almost as if to say, you're forgiven if you're in Christ. You're washed clean. But if you don't forgive other people, your transgressions are going to stick to you. They're still going to be there. They're going to be a weight to you. They're going to start to kill you. They're going to lead you into bitter places. They're going to make your life hard. I'm I'm sure none of you have ever known a Christian who was bitter. Because once we become Christians, we just slide into perfection. You know? I'm sure you've never known a Christian who was angry at the world. A Christian who never had a positive thing to say. It's always negative, negative. I'm, I'm sure you don't know anybody like that. I've known a few. 
Gang, I believe it's what Jesus is saying. It comes from a heart of unforgiveness that leaves our own transgressions hanging on us and weighing us down and causing decay and spiritual death. Something has died. Mercy was removed. Forgiveness set aside in favor of gazing at the law. And when you do that, with David, what happened was the joy was dead. The joy of his salvation was gone. You see, in the whole, in the whole instance with Bathsheba, as he, as he was hiding that whole thing, what he wasn't realizing in the, in the thrill of the secret sin. And you know what I'm talking about. Sin is thrilling, especially when no one knows. You've got a hidden sin and you're, you're keeping it quiet. You think you're the only one that knows and other people probably do know, but the Father definitely knows and there is, there's this rush, there's this kind of high that comes with secret sin. And David's in the midst of that with Bathsheba. Okay, you've got to send your wife to the front. you got to call her up to, to be with me because this is great. And he's not even thinking about what's really going on until Nathan tells the parable and he judges and then it all comes crashing in and David realizes what it was that he did. He lost the joy of his salvation. How can I ever now go wander the hills and sing some of the psalms that I've written? How can I get alone with the Lord now? My salvation is dead. When I look at the law and I cry violation as I point my finger at others, the bell tolls for me and my joy departs. Look over at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 36. This is Luke's take on the, on the same sermon, on the same, the Beatitudes as they're called. And in verse 36, Luke makes this statement, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. How is our Father merciful? I was watching uh, David Jeremiah this morning and he was talking about the, uh, the Latin word that was used by the Romans and, and using the Latin translation of the, of the New Testament for grace is gratis. It's a word that we use. You get something gratis, what does that mean? It's free. It's not paid for. You cannot pay for it. Once you pay for it, it's not gratis anymore. Once you pay for it, it's not grace. It is completely free. The mercy of God, the grace of God is not deserved. It's not paid for. We didn't earn it. We didn't win it. It was given gratis. How is our Father merciful? When Jesus says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Our Father is so merciful that He gave the law and covered it with mercy immediately. Our Father is so merciful that Lamentations 3.22 says, His loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions or mercies never fail. They are new every morning. You got up this morning, opened your eyes to wakefulness again, and the Lord says, here's more mercy for today. Here is grace for today. Every time I wake from sleep, I step into new mercies. Not, not the old mercy from yesterday. Yeah, that, that, you still got it, Rick. You're a little snot, but you still have my mercy from yesterday. No, they're new every morning. It's like it rejuvenates. And the Father says, today, today, brand new mercy. As if I don't even need to borrow off of the mercy of the past. It's brand new every morning. Jesus says, be merciful like that. Oh, man. That's tough. 
That means someone that you've had conflict with gets new mercy every day from you. He goes on. He says, do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give, he says, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. And I need to point this out. This is not a tithing verse. Now it's been used many times in sermons for tithing. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure. Pressed down, shaken over. Give to our fellowship. Give to my wallet. Give all that you can. It's not a tithing verse. It's a mercy verse. Give and it will be given to you. Give what? Give mercy. And Jesus is actually talking here when he says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will, not be, and you will be pardoned. What he's saying here is this, is this is a reality in relationships. This is true for how you interact with people. If you don't judge people, they're not going to judge you. And if you don't condemn people, they're not going to condemn you. If you pardon people, they're going to have a tendency to pardon you in return. And in our relationships, the more mercy we give, the more mercy we receive. It's a life principle from the lips of Jesus. If you're merciful, they will show you mercy when you need it. Now James picks up on this. He says in James chapter 2, verse 12, Speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How can I not be judgmental as a Christian? By focusing everything I am on mercy. Stand on the truth. Embrace the absolutes. Give mercy. Give mercy. James says in James 3.17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them them that, that make peace. And so you might say, okay, but Rick, how can I not judge the sinful actions of people in our world? The abortionist. How do I not judge that? The homosexual. How do I not judge that? The new age pagan who's out there preaching lies. How do I not judge that, especially if I know such behavior and lifestyle is hell-bent? That's a tough question. Are we as Christians not supposed to make judgments about things? Can we not open the scriptures and where homosexuality is concerned say, the Bible is very clear on this. Where life is concerned... Psalm 139, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Okay, there's interaction happening in the womb. How can I not make a judgment about these things? Listen very closely. Psalm 51, verse 10. Psalm 51 is David's heart cry after, after the whole Bathsheba incident, after everything comes out, and after the child that she is pregnant with dies because of his sin. David writes in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Why? Because it had died. David's old heart, the heart that he wrote the 23rd Psalm with, was dying because of his own sin. He said, Create it anew. I don't even want the old heart anymore. I want a new heart. 
He says, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Now listen, don't miss this. Verse 13, he says, then... I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. When? When? When I understand mercy. Once I get to the point of understanding mercy, then what I do evangelistically will not be because I want to be right. It will not be about me proving my side. Mercy, kindness, forgiveness, and grace are always more powerful voices of evangelism than judgment. How many people do you think we can truly save if we walk the streets, if we just went up and down Troxel house to house and said, hey, just want you to know if you're not in Jesus, you're going to burn in hell, sinner. <laughs> it doesn't work. So, so what do I say then? Someone says, I'm gay, and your Bible says I'm going to hell. Is that right? How do you respond to that? Well, yeah, let me show you the verse. <laughs> because you are going to hell, sinner. Um, let me point this out. No, you say, my Bible says God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what my Bible says. My Bible says God doesn't want anyone to perish. But all people that come to repentance... My Bible says that the lifestyle that you've chosen to live is hard. Is it not? Compassion is a completely different approach than sometimes what we do. We, we receive mercy in our lives, grace, salvation, but then we remove the mercy seat as soon as we come face to face with someone of horrific sin. As if their sin is any worse than ours. And you might say, well, Rick, I still think that's kind of dodging the truth. Let me ask you this. Are you more interested in making your point, proving our side, and winning the debate than we are in seeing lives saved? It's not about winning. God's already won. The truth is already set. The standard is there. I don't have to add to it. It's right, and it's good, and it's true. And I have found this to be a principle in ministry over the years. That when it comes to the Word, the Word convicts people. The Word pierces our heart. The Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, Jesus said. I don't. I don't have to. Now that doesn't mean that I'm not going to stand up here in two or three weeks and talk about what the Bible says about abortion. Or about homosexuality. It doesn't mean we're not going to touch those issues as Scripture brings it up as we're studying through. But you know what happens? Is if I'm showing grace and love and mercy to someone enough such that they come in the door and sit down and go, okay, I want to check out what's going on, then the Spirit can convict and the Spirit can judge. I'm not the judge. You're telling me I'm going to hell. I don't want you to go to hell. I don't even have the power to do that. Even if I was a jerk and wanted to, even if I just wanted to be, you know, like the guy on Heroes. You know, I don't know if you guys watched the first season. Sean and I are just at the end of it. Oh, man. I'm not sure if I should suggest people watch that show or not. It's really incredible. <laughs> anyway, I have no idea where I just went with that. I just kept... <laughs> Bible students, you may recall that the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation was known for great discernment. 
Man, they were good at discernment. They were good at judging and seeing what was the truth and what was a lie. They knew how to draw the line and they stood on the truth. And Jesus praised them for it. You're great at this. In fact, let me read it to you. This, this would have been the debate winning church. If you wanted someone to win a gospel debate somewhere, you'd call in Ephesus. Because they were good at this. Listen, he says, I know your deeds. Revelation chapter 2 verse 2. And your toil and your perseverance. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have persevered. And have endured for my name's sake. And have not grown weary. And gang, that is a good thing. He's not just setting them up for the next verse. That is good. And he is praising the church of Ephesus for being discerning and keeping an eye on the truth and standing against evil. And every church should. But then he says, But I have this against you. You've left your first love. Don't you love that Jesus uses that phrase, first love? He doesn't say you've you've left your love of the Father. You've left your love of all things holy and righteous. He says you've left your first love. The first love. It's it's an endearing, darling, precious little phrase. What would returning to their first love do for Ephesus? It would make them more loving. It would make them more forgiving, more merciful. You know, the longer Cheryl and I are married, the more our thinking and values and what matters to us is alike. We just, you know, you you tend to kind of start walking this road together. And whereas early on in our marriage we might have had real different opinions, the further down we go, the more those opinions are, are very, very shared. And we almost don't even have to say it. We can, with a look, know exactly what the other one's thinking. And those of you who are married, you understand what I'm saying about that. How much more so with the Lord? The longer we walk with Him, the more our values are aligned to His values. Which is why Jesus made this statement, Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Well, what do you mean, Jesus? Be like Dad. And the more I spend time with Jesus... Walking with Him, talking to Him, reading His Word, praying. The more I'm going to be like Jesus, who is merciful. What about justice? What about, I've been personally hurt by this person, I've been slandered, I've been gossiped about. I've been personally attacked and undermined, and Jesus would say, you think you've been hurt by someone's treatment? It killed me. You think you're having a little emotional struggle because someone's coming against you? That whole thing killed me. That was on me at Calvary. That sin in relationship, that head-to-head that's going on in your life right now, I was wearing that. You think you hurt? You have no idea. Jesus went to the cross, scorning its shame, Bearing all of the weight of our stuff so that he could turn around and after saving us say, you don't have to fight that battle. I died in it. You show mercy. You show compassion. You show love. You stand on the truth, but you speak it, as Paul said, in love. Love and mercy. 
For the survivors of Beth Shemesh, they cried out, Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? And they were right. No one can stand before the Lord. So he provided for Israel the mercy seat. Just a picture, a shadow of the substance, Jesus Christ, who he provided so that we might come before him. And Hebrews 9, chapter, in chapter 9, verse 13, ends this way. It says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will this cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Remove mercy and we die. Our conscience needs some cleansing. I don't know about you, but I need to be cleansed from dead works. Dead works. Things that kill. Things that kill in my own life. Things that kill other people. I need my conscience to be cleansed from dead works. So I can serve the living God with His kind of mercy. Be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful.